0: Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Like I said, it's, it's a real privilege and honor for me have you on so you're a co-host of the online great books podcast and a strength coach for barbell logic that's right and your the tag that i got from your blog is books and barbells but before that you were also a university professor <laughs> right for 20 years
1: yeah well yeah I, I taught for 20 years at various universities and taught philosophy and humanities
0: and you have yes. a phd in philosophy and also a master's in engineering so
1: quite the spread quite the range of things there i have a master's in theology too
0: my bad i didn't see that on your webpage. <laughs> as long as we're throwing degrees out there man
1: it doesn't matter it's pointless don't waste your time go learn to world
0: so you wouldn't recommend the academia route you mean like becoming uh
1: a professor or... not really you know if somebody talked to me about that i'd I'd have to say, are you really, really interested in this subject? Say you want to get a PhD in philosophy. Is this the thing that you think about all the time? Do you love it? And if the person said yes, I would say, well, then maybe you should do it. Because the problem is, by the time you're done with it, five or six years in, you're going to hate it. And if you don't have a sufficient threshold, before you go into it, you're going to hate it too much and you're going to end up not finishing. You're going to go uh, negative. Because it is. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it, it's, at, it's school. You'd be a strange person if you thought school was the best life, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, like constantly building up knowledge but not applying it maybe.
1: Well, having it's more having classes and being accountable to professors and having to be examined on your knowledge, you know, this might be a necessary stage in life for people, but it's not one you should like. I don't think I think if you did, you you know you remember when in high school there were the kids that liked school, yeah, yeah, and they'd say they'd say, you forgot to give us homework,
0: yeah, those are the people like, that know? post on LinkedIn all the time now, in my opinion, the kids <laughs> that sit at the front of the class, you know, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I stay away from linkedin but so i and then I would say, from a I don't know how much you want to get into this but everything is politics now and in academia everything is leftist politics so you have to consider that it might be very difficult for you to manage to get through academia if you are not sufficiently leftist yeah so if you are you know maybe you ought to do it but so that i i don't know i mean i i think Gosh, I think something like online great books is is fantastic for most people with an intellectual bent. You know, you should, there are these gentlemen, gentlemen scientists, gentlemen philosophers, you know, like that were, who was an academic? Was Kant, did Kant, I think Kant was an academic. I think he was a professor. Nietzsche left his cushy professor gig. You know, Hume didn't have a teaching position. Hobbes didn't have it. I think Hobbes worked at some government job somewhere. Kierkegaard uh, only taught Latin for a little bit, if I remember
0: right. And that was yeah, it. Well, can you imagine having Kierkegaard as a teacher? No, or Wittgenstein for that matter. I'd be terrified.
1: Yeah. yeah. Wittgenstein, when he got news of his, his cancer diagnosis, his answer was good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, dear listener, that you have a mind, all of this stuff is accessible to you. It should not be behind the walls of academia. You shouldn't think that you need syllables after your name to have permission to read Heidegger. You know, if you want to, go ahead. If you go to the wingnut corners of the internet, you'll find people doing lots of work on this kind of stuff, but Mm. not academic. Academia is where you go for credentials. If you want an academic job, if you want to write, you know, for the leading journals, I guess that's kind of the the theory behind online great books that, well, it's not true that everybody can read this stuff. Everybody can pick up the book, but they are hard. Not not everyone's going to be able to do it, but a whole lot of people are going to be able to do it. And it's going to be a lot more than is camped out in academia. So you know, you run a seminar. And I don't say this to to talk down about anybody, but quite the opposite. But when you you do a seminar and you're you're talking Aristotle with a carpenter, that's fantastic. That's exactly what should be happening.
0: Yeah, that's the way Socrates did it, right?
1: Right. Anyway, what was the question?
0: Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I mean that that dovetails perfectly because most of the people I know outside of OGB. Either they don't know about Nietzsche, or they like, yeah, I've heard the name, or they associate it with maybe anti-Semitism or something like that. Or they're too intimidated to crack open something like the gay science, or it's also called the Joyous Wisdom, or different translations. And I, like what you said, you don't need to have an, an MA to read Nietzsche. And I think you've said this before. These people were writing for you. And I've that's been very encouraging for me like okay i will take a crack at you know the gorgias i'll take a crack at some kierkegaard or whatever and struggle but i get a lot out
1: yeah well he he wrote it for you nietzsche will say occasionally i am too early i have not the readers yet you know there's some reader somewhere that that's out there ready for this book and he's just kind of flinging it out there, and it might not be the people that, you know, the books didn't do very well. In so, his lifetime, yeah, yeah, somebody's somebody's out there to read it. Like you know, Moby Dick, for example, just a disaster from a publisher standpoint. It wasn't until, you know, maybe 1920 that anybody started to read it. And if you've never read that book, that's a that's a kick in the in the gut. You know, it it, it takes a while for people to find this stuff.
0: One thing I've heard you say about Nietzsche is that he's your friend. And so Mm. I wanted to ask you how you became friends. And I should, should clarify for those that don't know who Nietzsche is. He's been dead for 123 years. So not like you're literally friends, but, you know, friends in the sense of maybe like a soul friend. And yeah. How did you become friends?
1: Well, meaning he sheds, he sheds light on existence for me. It is a joy to read his stuff. It's fun Later works are are mostly little aphorisms, digestible. This does not mean that I agree with him. You know, you don't have to agree with your friends. It means that you feel smarter after talking to him. Gosh, it probably would have been in grad school sometime years ago. And I bet it would be Genealogy of Morals. Genealogy of Morals, which presents you with theory that once you hear it, I don't know how you get away from it. You might overcome it but you can't get away from it and that's that morality as you know it is different from the morality of the ancient people okay so if you read the iliad which you should nobody calls anybody evil in that book they don't even have the concept they will call i was just reading it the other day they will say that Agamemnon spoke kakos badly <laughs> to the priest. The priest came and wanted his daughter back and brought gold and, and uh, attempted to ransom her, and Agamemnon said, no, I'm not going to do it. It says he spoke badly. It doesn't say he spoke evilly. So what Nietzsche points out, and it, it seems to, to work out in the language, is that our language of good and bad originally was attached to aristocracy okay so the aristocrat was called good and everybody else was in contrast so if you were the prince then you were noble and beautiful and if you were not the prince if you were out in the field the things that were attached to you were called would be considered bad like uh, heck you can see this in language about color i mean this is a fraught issue but they'll talk about wide-armed hera Well, why does Hera have white arms? It's because she doesn't go outside because she's a princess. I mean, she's the queen of the gods. So if if you get all sunburned and everything and you're dark, you know, so darkness gets attached to badness, not evil, badness, because, you know, you're a field hand. And then what he argues is that there has been a revolt, a slave revolt, where the, the people in the fields have constructed a concept of evil and attached it to the nobility and have appropriated the concept of good for themselves.
0: Like a slave morality versus an elite morality?
1: Yeah, yeah. And you look at it and you start to think, my gosh, I I think that might be true, you know? And if you're a Christian looking at that, well, you have to, you know, you'll have to, to, it's interesting being a Christian who reads Nietzsche, but... They're out there. And so you end up so so you come up with this this idea of slave morality. And once you you get the concept from Nietzsche, then you see it everywhere. And so you would see it like this, that and I again I don't mean to offend, but people who, who are less well favored. Okay. People who are, you know, if you're like they they joke on Twitter, if you're not over six feet in a man, you know, well, I'm five eleven. So if you're like if you're short and you have some problems. Well, you, it, you think about it. It's like high school. You see those people that are doing well. So you see the football star and the beautiful girl that he gets to date because he's the football star. And your reaction is not joy in their in their in their happiness. You know, how wonderful it must be to be able to carry a football for 150 yards in a game. And then to get a kiss from the beautiful girl. How wonderful that, no, no, what you do is say, I hate those people. Yeah, those people,
0: yeah.
1: Well, why do you hate them? You you hate them because you can't do it. You know, you resent it. And then so you try to tear them down. You spread rumors about her. You know, I, I know what she did or about him. I, she writes all his papers. You know, he cheated on the SAT or whatever. You make up things that you don't know and you try to tear them down, does it make your life better?
0: No, it's like it's like crabs in a bucket. So in a way it's comforting if we can tear them down.
1: Well, it must be comforting in some way. It, it scratches some itch or people wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, then you think about it and then you look around at the way of the world and you see it everywhere
0: yeah equality is like the good
1: yeah well the fact is people are not equal that's just a fact and you can say to say what the founder said created equal it's it's well they specify it in terms of rights and i think that's okay i think that's good but if you're going to say people actually are equal they're not and the you. only way that you can make them equal is like the old rush song trees i don't know if you know that one yeah, yeah. isn't it there's dead? trouble in the forest there's unrest among the trees for the maples want more sunlight and the oaks ignore their pleas and so in the end the, the all of the trees are made equal by what is it axe hammer and saw something like that
0: yeah i like rush the voices get to me though but the lyrics are good like the lyrics are usually pretty meaningful they're great to work out too. i like tom sawyer <laughs> mostly because of the drum rolls when, when you're doing like some lift.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, the mid eighties, mid eighties stuff got a little bit prog for me. The, yeah. If you have not listened to the last few albums, you should, they're very good.
0: Okay. I've heard, I listened to like moving pictures and,
1: um, no, you need to listen to, well, moving pictures is excellent, but you should listen to the stuff they did in the, just recently snakes and arrows, I think. And, uh, then they had one more Clockwork Angels. Oh, okay. The, the, it's kind of a return to form. I think they had a triumphant return to form before Neil passed away. And, and you can think of, I don't want to know, you know, if you want to get into politics or anything, but you can see a lot of the way the world is. You propose a policy and it gets implemented, not because it's actually good, going to make anything better but because it's going to hurt somebody or some yeah, opponent yeah it's revenge it's not seeking the public good it's how can i hurt this group yeah and and so that's what i mean so you read that as i was a young feller then you read that and you say and all of a sudden it shines a light on so much that you see and you think who's this who's this guy
0: yeah, um, what is that what grabbed you then was you couldn't get it out of your mind and you just started seeing it everywhere.
1: Yeah. As an observer of the state of things, he's very, very good.
0: Yeah. Um, he was a keen beholder of life. But I think to understand the gay science, it's like the antithesis of a philosophical treatise where you, You know, work through an idea. It's a bunch of disjointed aphorisms. So it's kind of chaotic. And I think that represents his idea of the chaotic universe. But one big premise is that God is dead. He was the one that originally said that. So what do you think he meant when he said God is dead?
1: Uh, I'm trying to find it in the book. Do you remember which section it is?
0: Yeah, it is
1: 108, right, very beginning of book three. Yeah, but then there's the long one where the, the madman? Well, mad 125. Square. Yeah. So I have the Cambridge edition right now. Haven't you heard of that madman who in the bright morning lit a lantern and ran around the marketplace crying incessantly, I'm looking for God. I'm looking for God. Since many of those who did not believe in God were standing around together just then, he caused great laughter. Has he been lost then? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone to sea? Emigrated, pause for a minute. This is me, not not Friedrich. If you read the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, so they are calling upon their God to come down onto the sacrifice and of course he doesn't answer and Elijah makes fun and says, where is he? Is he gone for a walk? Is he out you know urinating? you know it's Elijah like makes fun. So this recalls to me that story because Baal was absent or maybe didn't exist. I'm reading again. Then they shouted and laughed, one interrupting the other. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God? He cried. I'll tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. I'll just read a little bit more. But how did we do this? How are we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving to now? Where are we moving to? Away from all suns? Are we not continually falling? And backwards, sideways, forwards, in all directions, is there still an up and a down? I guess that we could pause right there. So, God is dead. Well, you, you might have seen the joke. You know, it's like on the bathroom wall God is dead. Nietzsche, Nietzsche is dead. God. The actual existence of the deity, which Friedrich doesn't think there is one, but it's almost beside the point. Okay. We have killed him. God as a concept, God as a regulative ideal through which you can order your life and society is gone. This was apparent in 1870, whenever he wrote that, and it's even more apparent now. And well, what's the reaction to that? If that's the case, just as just as a fact of society, not you know, whatever you if you're a person of faith listening to the podcast that this is not aimed at you it's not to say that god is dead god is i actually think god is not dead and is alive but as a governing concept that might be dead christendom is dead
0: and i'm curious do you think that he was saying that because now darwinism has shown that the whole story of adam and eve it's no longer tenable or was he just seeing the shift away from it?
1: Well, his how he comes to his own opinions is. Uh, I mean, his dad was a Lutheran minister, and I think he died kind of young. So Nietzsche's personal history, you know, you, you'd have to ask him. So, uh, yeah, I I don't think maybe it was Darwin, but I don't think Darwin proves anything. You know, I think it's it's it gives an excuse, but. But, you know, for me, that's not the, why does Nietzsche not believe in God? That's not so interesting to me, okay? It's his discovery and examination of the consequences of widespread disbelief in God. That's interesting. So, you, you know, you kind of shrug, you're, you're, you're a high school sophomore, and you convince yourself there is no God, and you smile because you're so clever, you know, that you figured this out. We've all been there, right? And, and then, then you go about your business, you know, is that the, is that the correct response? If this is really true, you know, you just, you just shrug and Nietzsche says, is there, is there even an up and down? Okay. Where do values come from? That's one of the questions he asks. The other question he asks about values is what good are they? And that's an an interesting answer for that too. If there is no God, then there is. I mean, let's say we, we we're talking about science, and uh, we start talking about the laws of nature. We we've got some understanding of the regularity of nature. So you and I have a chat about gravity and and the strong force and the weak force and whatever else, laws of thermodynamics, and then. You start to think, well, why are there laws? What guarantees that there are laws?
0: Are they even laws?
1: Right. Right. If I am a uh, Isaac Newton, for example, a strong and strange believer, he believed weird things. He was into alchemy. Did you know this?
0: When he died, they found traces of, was it lead or something in his hair? He was doing stuff with his eyes. Newton's a strange, strange guy.
1: He also went undercover to find counterfeiters. I did not know that. He worked for the British government as a cop. So this is the greatest historical TV series that has never been made.
0: <laughs> That's amazing, yeah.
1: Because you could have him... You know, they make that movie, the the show uh, Monk. So they're making a lot about the guy who... who it's obsessive compulsive and they make him a you take isaac newton and make him a detective and have him like go off into numerology and alchemy and come at the who the killer is sideways and backwards that would be fun but no one would get it even if anybody wrote it nobody would get it so it's never going to see the light of day maybe i'll have chat gpt write it up for me
0: there you
1: go yeah Uh, so whenever you talk of laws you're presuming whether you like it or not, you're presuming a lawgiver, or at least something that causes the laws to stick around. So if you are like Isaac Newton, and you're discovering laws of nature, you think that you're discovering the mind of God. You know, the world is governed by providence, according to the mind of God. Well, if God is dead, you take the top out of your theory can everything still or rather the foundation out of your theory and and you're you're thinking the building's going to stand up
0: yeah what guarantees yeah what basis does any of that have he's like an inverted isaiah is how i think of him in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. He's, he's like the prophet of chaos and he goes on to say to your point but in a different part under 109 let us beware Talks about the overall character of the world, however, is from all eternity chaos. And so not in the sense of a lack of necessity, but rather in the sense of a lack of order, structure, form, beauty, wisdom, or whatever else our aesthetically attractive human qualities are called. So it's like there is no there is no law. He says that there is no law. Let us be aware that there are laws in nature. There are only necessities. There is no one who commands, no one who obeys, and no one who transgresses. Mm -hmm. that's I mean that's something you could chew on for days because the implications are oh there's that means there was no transgression you know everything kind of falls apart and and with it in a way science too
1: well and if if that's true and the thing is everybody on the street kind of casually thinks this okay America has come late to its atheism, but we're getting there. You know, we're diving in now, but everyone else is, has been... The the believers in God in Europe is a rounding error, at least in Western Europe. You know, So everybody kind of already doesn't believe. But have they plumbed the depths of their unbelief? Do they realize where this goes? But they might still think, for example, that, get me the wrong way, NSA, if you're listening, but they might still think, well, murder is wrong. Right. Why? Why is it wrong?
0: Yeah. Well, and then they're just left to think, well, because it's just a, because it's the law. The premise is no longer there, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Or I don't like murder. You know, it's wrong because I don't like it. Well, I bet I could find somebody where you would like it.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It becomes a matter of the taste.
1: yeah it becomes a matter of taste or or whatever it's a value but it's a value unmoored from the thing that that made it happen and so you have a complete collapse of value systems which i think is what he's talking about when he says is there still an up and down aren't we staring as though in an infinite nothing how would you live then would you live as a, a nihilist You know, I was just reading, I forget his name. Nietzsche mentions him at the end of the book. There was this philosopher of pessimism. He read Schopenhauer and, and went further than Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer, I think, is the most optimistic pessimist. But this guy, oh, what was his name? I have to look him up. He was a young man and he wrote two philosophy books and he finished his second philosophy book and he hanged himself because that was it. You know, what was the point? I think he was 35. I forget his name. Meinländer, I think, was his name that he published under. Meinländer, yeah. Well, okay, so, dear listener, dweller in the 21st century, how will you live unmoored from all values? Well, Nietzsche's got an answer for you. You might not like it, but they need to be created.
0: He thought, since God is dead, the only thing left that can take up the redemptive qualities of Christianity is is art and making ourselves in a way, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to... So this is a quote from actually... book part. The book is divided into little chapters, like 360, and five big parts, but everything else is numbered. So this is in number one. Man has gradually become a visionary animal who has to fulfill one more condition of existence than the other animals. Man must, from time to time, believe that he knows why he exists. His species cannot flourish without periodically confiding in life. So, you know, dogs don't worry about this. For them, food and ear scratches or whatever is enough. We're not aware of dogs worrying about any of this. Certainly, the lower lower animals don't. The human being has this thing where we, we care about ourselves. This Heidegger says Dasein is the being that cares about its own being. Dasein is, is his way of because he's Heidegger and he's kind of a jerk, but it's his way of naming the human being without saying human. It, so you 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 live in a world of value. Some things are worth more, more than others. He says later in this passage from time to time the human race will decree anew that there is something which really may not be laughed at. You know, there's going to be something that we take as a supreme value, but where does that come from? Humans are the animals that create values.
0: Yeah, or discover them. Mm-hmm. I I like to think that we discover them, but well, discover not...
1: then. If you say discover, then you don't think God is dead.
0: Exactly. I, I that was that was me showing my cards. I
1: I do believe
0: yeah. in objective value, and on a personal note, I I was a very religious person up until the late twenties, and then had kind of a breaking away from my faith and it was extremely difficult and so it's only been funnily enough reading the gay science and learning about Nietzsche like you said because because he plums the depths so far he takes it to the utmost extreme of okay you don't believe in god okay that means you're kind of signing up for x y and z and there's a there's a really good passage Oh yeah. 285. It's called Excelsior in my version, but he says, you will never again pray. You will never again, worship, never again, rest in infinite trust. You refuse to stand and unharness your thoughts before an ultimate wisdom, ultimate virtue, ultimate power. You have no constant companion. So like the Holy ghost or the spirit, right? You have no constant companion and friend for your seven solitudes. You live without view of a mountain, there is no longer anyone who will reward or punish you. And he then goes on and on and he says, man of renunciation, will you renounce all of these things? And then he says, no one has yet had the strength to do all of that renunciation. So it helped me realize, okay, some very serious consequences. I couldn't have thought of this, but he did. And it's, it's, it's like a, a limit. It puts a limit on your skepticism. And I, I really appreciate that. I think that's very helpful.
1: Yeah, I I, I think so. So the, our, our hypothetical high school sophomore who thinks that he discovers that there is no God and then says, that's great, now I can go do whatever I want with Susie. You know, <laughs> values are gone. I mean, they might have a sense that values are gone. Like I remember William F. Buckley in one of his books. I know Scott hates him. I'm reevaluating it myself, but he had in one of his books, he says, this is a typical argument for atheism. It's not the best argument, but it's a typical argument. It is. Premise one is, I wish to I have sex with my girlfriend. Premise two, the church forbids it. Conclusion, there is no God.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's some you reasoning. Know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a cheap kind of, come on just because you want to scratch a certain itch does not have any bearing on metaphysical truths of the universe. But uh, so let's say, let's take your high school sophomore conclusion and let's see where it goes. And and our friend Friedrich's going to tell you, this is where it goes. You know, you, you can't pray anymore. You can't adore anymore. There's no highest thing outside of you. Now, interesting things is where you go with that modern day Nietzscheans which you can find there's like five of them on Twitter they call it vitalism you know so you have a choice to be a nihilist or I guess to ignore the problem or to embrace life and so again I don't ha- I was kind of rushed. I didn't have all my notes. But he talks in, in this book about the eternal return. Yeah. Okay. And this is, if you find a passage, that would be it's great. It's 341. But it's a few places. Let's see where 341 says. So, yeah. So, I'm going to re- I'm gonna read a little bit. Hopefully, dear listener, you'll see how much fun he is, how beautiful his writing is. This is much better to read than Kant. What if, someday or night, a demon were to steal into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once again and innumerable times again, and there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unspeakably small or great in your life must return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. Even this spider and this moonlight between the trees and even this moment and I myself, The eternal hourglass of existence is turned over again and again, and you with it speck of dust. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, You are a god, and never have I heard anything more divine? Uh, I guess I'll pause there. So, To make the non-nihilist choice is to choose something. So nihilism is nothingism. So we're going to choose somethingism. But that something might be that your life is it. And what if it was just your life eternally? You know, what if you go out and you, you look up at the sky and you see the turning of the stars if you live in a place where you can see stars? And you think, well, you know, cosmologists have theorized about repeating big bangs and it might just be that over an infinite amount of time that I'm going to stand in this field an infinite amount of times can you be joyful at that
0: that's a tough one yeah because
1: that's vitalism
0: yeah and make your life so you can say yes in a way right like live in a way so that if you had to or if that's what's going to happen then you could say absolutely is that is that kind of what he's getting at
1: i think that's part of it you know if 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 the it's going to be an eternal return do i really want to eternally return and be uh i don't know watching seven different marvel movies you know what sort of life do you want to make for yourself but you you're not doing this in terms of eternal life that god's going to reward you for it because you don't you know you discovered as a high school sophomore, there is no God and there is no reward, but you're just doing it for its own value. No, but it's its own value that, that you have to construct.
0: Yeah. That's hard. Like, I don't think I could do that. personally.
1: <laughs> My name isn't Nisha yeah. or Aristotle. Like, well, I- and this is where you get later on into ideas of the the overman and the will to power and, you know, the fun stuff, which I think is right. The, the, the thing about values. So you do a little thought experiment. If you're going to, I don't know, let's say you're lifting weights and you're going to, to create some values for yourself. So you decide you're going to set up a meet in your garage. Okay. And well, you're not going to invite anybody because it's in your garage. But you're going to make yourself a trophy. And so then you go, you do your 135 deadlift and your 135 squat, maybe a bench press, 95 pounds. And you say, I'm the champion. And you establish yourself the value of being the champion of the Nathan Cheever Invitational. Yeah. Okay. Is that any good? That's a hard one. I mean, like, No, but what is good anymore, right? (laughs) What is good is what is good is self-directed, but if you're honest, if you're honest, so Nietzsche's big on honesty. Yeah. Some things that you value will not be as good as other things. So it needs to be grand, it needs to be glorious, and it might be that not everybody is able to establish values.
0: Yeah. Not everybody can do this.
1: Yeah, not everybody can do it. Some people are are ordinary folk. Not everybody's an overman. And I, I quote Heidegger in this a bit. Heidegger says, somewhere, only a God can save us now. One of his late interviews. He doesn't think there's a God either, so we're screwed. But, you know, a God, a, a, a divine being, somebody who can establish an order. Did you ever read Wallace Stevens? One of my favorite poems. I'll we'll pull it up. Anecdote of the jar. Okay. This is one of those moments of light from an English teacher in high school. It's a short poem. I placed a jar in Tennessee, and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around, no longer wild. The jar was round upon the ground and tall and a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give of bird or bush like nothing else in Tennessee. I confess I don't understand the last line, but... So you have this wilderness, this unorganized chaos. You place a jar in the middle of it. Just a jar. It's a silly thing. And suddenly everything has an order in relation to the jar. All right. So I placed an Achilles in Ilium. And round he was upon the hill and everything surrounding him. You know, you know what I mean? So you have you have somebody who establishes a system of values just by existing. And so I'm bringing up the Iliad here. So if you're unfamiliar with it, Achilles refuses to fight. Spoiler. I know you've read it, Nathan, but if your listeners have read it, he refuses to fight and he brings about a new thought on honor. Because Agamemnon thinks of honor in terms of you can measure it. You know, how much stuff do you have? How much things have the other soldiers voted to you? And Achilles says that he doesn't care about all of that. He is the greatest and needs to be honored. But for him, honor is something different. He even says, I won't take your money. Which is weird. Ajax says, everybody would take the money. Why won't you take the money?
0: And a lot of women. yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And now... The reason it's able to be done is because it's done by Achilles, who is the greatest guy there on the beach. Everybody knows he's great. He can do it. Thersites couldn't, you know, or any of the unnamed people. I hate to say it, but the establishment of values is not something that you do on your own. Right. You could try it, but they're going to be small values like my, my little powerlifting meet. You pat yourself on the back for being the strongest person in your garage that day. It's ridiculous.
0: Like a xy axis, if you will, like the x-axis is power. So you're more powerful than me physically, so you're further on the x-axis. So we have a relation there. But then there's the y-axis, which could be like so if X is the x is might, Y would go. Right.
1: Like I have to make might. this graph. X is might.
0: Yeah, X is might. Why would be right or a good? What is good? And so you don't define the axis on your own. You have a position relative to it, you know? So that's kind of how I see it. And what's nice about that is if they're truly orthogonal, powerlessness may not be the immoral choice. There may be times when what is right is to be powerless in a way, kind of like, like Gandhi, I'm thinking of, of Gandhi to surrender yourself physically in a way. But what happens with, like Nietzsche says, when we lose when God is dead and we lose this this system, it's like everything collapses down into power. Am I getting that right? It's like, therefore, might makes right. And not everybody's going to be able to be equally good. So we, we almost need this superman, this ubermensch.
1: The overman might actually be beautiful as well. So in Zarathustra, which I do not have a copy of handy, I think I do. I have it in German. you speak German? Uh, no, I can read it. I suppose I could speak a tiny bit, but I'm looking for the first part of Zarathustra, which is actually from the gay science as well. Okay. When Zarathustra was 30 years old, he left his home and the lake of his home and went into the mountains. Here he enjoyed his spirit and his solitude and for 10 years did not tire of it, but at last a change came over his heart and one morning he rose with the dawn, stepped before the sun and spoke to it thus. You have to imagine the music that Strauss wrote for this, you know, the 2001 Also struck, Zarathustra, something like that. Yeah. You, great star, what would your happiness be had you not those for whom you shined? For 10 years you have climbed to my cave. You would have tired of your light and of the journey had it not been for me and my eagle and my serpent but we waited for you every morning took your overflow from you and blessed you for it behold i am weary of my wisdom like a bee that's gathered too much honey i need hands outstretched to receive it i'm not gonna read the whole thing but like you i must go under go down as is said by man to whom i want to descend so we have this and it ends with thus Zarathustra began to go under untergang i believe so you say power i say beauty as well. You know, it, it's it's not it's not necessarily like a fascist imposition of values by making a law that you can't do something. It might be an aesthetic appeal, you know, which the, the modern day Twitter Nietzscheans are big on. You know, you, you have to be you have to be good looking. You have to lift weights. You have to be they have to be beautiful. You know, how could you How could you live as a man thinking god is dead and just you know decay and and get up to 300 pounds playing video games and eating cheetos all day that going to be your answer why not why not be glorious
0: he says we must become homers of our own lives we must become the poets of our own lives and in the smallest and most common matters first and foremost and So maybe not, he's not telling us to literally become, because he, I believe he was a failed composer. He tried, couldn't make it work as a composer, but not literally saying become a painter, but live. I love what he says in 283. He says, The secret to harvesting the greatest fruitfulness and the greatest enjoyment from existence is to live dangerously. Build your cities on the slope of Vesuvius. Send your ships into uncharted seas. Live in live in war with your equals and with yourselves. Be robbers and conquerors, you knowledge seekers. It seems like that's like his his exclusive inner club. That's what he's called them in this book, the knowledge seekers. And I'm thinking about a lion in a zoo, they're depressed because there's nothing wild. There's no danger. There's no chance for them to be who they are. And so, it, it seems like he's saying, live in a way. Doesn't matter what the results are, but live true to your real nature as you know, as shown to us by the pre-Socratics, by the Greeks who, who had a good idea before everything got screwed up by Christianity.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking of a quote from uh, Bronze Age Mindset. The guy says that the primates only masturbate in captivity. <laughs> you know, what does this mean? Right? So if you're not leading a, I'm going to say glorious, if you're not leading a glorious life, if you're not attempting to do something, you might as well be a primate in the primate house at the zoo flinging poo and doing the other stuff that they do. Don't take your kids to the monkey house.
0: Yeah. I don't really like the zoo anyway. It depresses me. Well, the
1: monkey house is bad because they're close enough to us that they evoke empathy. You know, In physical form, they're close enough to human. You can kind of imagine you're, that you're one of them. But then you see them, and they actually do. They masturbate and throw poo. That's what they spend their time doing. It's, it's sad. Yeah. yeah, well, is it sad? Yeah, I think it's sad. It's not, It's not. you know, there's no God, so I can't say it's not what nature, your nature was meant for. But gosh, that's a small way to spend your eternal recurrence, you know?
0: You mentioned becoming glorious, and that's that's another thing I saw on your barbell lifting page. Is you want to help people become glorious, so yeah. in the mind and in the body, whether it's learning about Nietzsche or you've been writing a lot too about the Iliad lately, which is awesome. I love the Iliad. I just got my son a book, Tales of the Odyssey, because I was uh-huh. I was looking at my Odyssey and like I don't know, he's six, like I don't, he can read at a third grade level, but he's I think he's going to get a little lost with all of the, you know, the Athena stuff. So now he's just obsessed with Cyclopses and the monsters and he's loving it. But I'm sorry, I digress. But uh, I really just wanted to slip in one more question if I could. He kind of died before he died. Mm -hmm. I think it was 1889.
1: He, Yeah, he saw a horse being ill-treated across the road. And I forget what he said, but he, you know, tried to stop it and then collapsed and was an invalid for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah, he broke. But if you could go back, say, in time to nineteen or 1888 and have dinner with him in Turin, is there (laughs) anything that you'd want to ask him?
1: Or maybe challenge him on? Oh, I I don't know. I I, I would enjoy the dinner, I think. I don't know. It's the question I have for the current crop of of Nietzscheans is uh, since I'm actually not one. I just really, really like his writing. But the... Mm -hmm. What, he might even laugh at the question, you know, what would, what can Christianity learn from it? You know, I think if you are a believing Christian, I think you need to come to terms with his critique. If your religion is nothing but slave morality, resentment, this is the problem. You know, if it's all about, um, Catholics say preferential option for the poor and none of it's about repentance and becoming godlike. then I think his criticisms are, are good, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like asking what's the square circle. I would say, Friedrich, what would a Christian Nietzschean be like?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And then
1: he'd probably laugh in his soup. <laughs> Have you seen his mustache?
0: Yeah, yeah if Soup could even get through that thing. I don't even know how he would, he'd have to like lift it up. It's walrus-like, it's pretty impressive. You know, if anyone that is interested in becoming more of a better person, whether in mind or body, how can they find you in the interwebs?
1: Well, you could just go to carlshoot.com. I have to spell it for you though. K-A-R-L-S-C-H-U-D-T.com. And there should be links to other things. You can find me at Online Great Books. I run a bunch of the seminars. We have our podcast. We have a couple of podcasts, but we're kind of on hold on one of them, where the music and ideas with Trent Jones and Scott Hamburg, who knows everything about music. Unbelievable, the stuff that's in his brain. And then we have our main podcast, which is the Online Great Books podcast, which is coming out a little bit slower nowadays, but still active. And then you can find me at barbell-logic.com. You can look for me if you want coaching, we can get you strong. And then, you know, you can go from there. I don't know where you want to set as your values, but it's a lot better to be able to pick up heavy stuff.
0: Yeah. I can't remember you said it, but stronger people are happier and harder to kill.
1: Or useful and harder to kill in general. Yeah. That's Rip's quote. And that, that's kind of true. I mean, that is true, but interacting with the physical world you are a physical being you interact with the physical world all the time your state of mind will become much better if picking up your suitcase is not a struggle
0: with excellence yeah
1: yeah yeah awesome. so we can help you
0: well like i said we could i'd love to talk more and there's so much more Nietzsche there so i hope people will take a crack at it but thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure
1: oh it's it's been fun you